Bancast for you. And for the first time in what feels like forever, Drancer, I don't know about you, but yeah, we were on such a this. run there when the Canucks were playing. We've both taken a step back. I know you're still in the bubble in Edmonton, and you may be free by the weekend. How about that? Oh, uh, let's for a go. Premise. <laughs> go. I know you're not supposed to take sides in this, but something tells me now you're cheering for Tampa in five. Tampa's my favorite team ever. you know what though it's a weird moment because as i've written about i think it's hard to fight back from the brink in bubble hockey uh you know what the canucks did against vegas like that was an outlier for me and so you know i kind of think there's a lot on the line with uh, in friday's game like i think if dallas loses friday's game back to back down 3-1 i think that's as tough a game to win that saturday potentially in the event that they're down 3-1 before it. Uh, I think that's as tough a game to win as we've ever seen in the sport, straight up. And so I really think the leverage of Friday night's game is through the roof for the Dallas Stars. Like, they have to have it if they're going to win the Cup. The last time we podcast, if that's a verb... Podcasted? uh, Podcasted. We spent a fair bit of time. We knew that Dallas was in, and we looked at Dallas and sort of through the Canucks lens of, you know, how the stars were built and, and the way they got here. This is a Canucks podcast, and, and I, I, there hasn't been a whole lot at the surface for the Vancouver Canucks, but we are buttressing up against these next two weeks that are going to really set the framework for what this team will look like next season and possibly beyond. So, you know, it's getting down to crunch time here, even though the Stanley Cup final uh, is still carrying on. And uh, let me just say to the listeners right here, right now, we'll get to a bunch of Canuck stuff because there are Canuck topics that we have to hit on. But you're in Edmonton, you're following the Stanley Cup final. Just a thought or two on this Tampa Hockey Club. Because when I, I watched Game 3... And you see their best players take over. Like, it's an absolute joy to watch the game when the best players in the world are at the tops of their games. And to watch a guy like Kucherov and to watch that top line for Tampa. And look, the Stamco story was great. And it's something we'll all in hockey be talking about for for decades, probably. I mean, every Stanley Cup final, that's going to be brought up as a, a, you know, one of those Stanley Cup memories. But for me, it's it's just, it's watching these top-end guys when they crank it up, and obviously Victor Hedman as well. I mean, Tampa right now, I know that they lost the first game, but as you talked about, like it's going to be difficult for Dallas to battle back. I won't write them off yet because that's kind of been their storyline throughout all of this. But damn, when those top-end Tampa guys are going, hockey's fun to watch. You know, getting the opportunity as I have now to watch Nikita Kucherov play eight games over the span of, you know, two weeks... has changed my perspective on him like he is my favorite player to watch in in the sport now and you know I knew he was great I enjoyed watching him on television the lightning have been a team that I've followed pretty closely just because I love the way that they play skilled hockey in a tough way but watching him live and seeing like there was this play last night where he rips a puck off the wall on his backhand and does so in a way so that when he takes the puck off of his backhand which by the way one of the hardest things to do in the sport. Um, he, he goes immediately into a forehand backhand deke in one fluid motion. It was like he ripped the puck off the wall in such a way that he was right into a deke that completely shook Jamie Alexiak. Like, completely shook him. Bought Kucherov all kinds of time and space. He sets up a play. Loose puck in the, in the slot. He takes a whack at it with his stick. Misses because it's, you know, bouncing. Like, it was a, it was a hopeful swing. And it lands, and he sees Pilat in his peripherals, but his stick is still in the air because he's swung at it. 
and he tries like a Mesut Ozil soccer pass to set up a scoring chance, and it works. And I'm just thinking, like, who who does that? Like, who does that? He does that kind of stuff almost every shift. It's it's incredible. And when I look at this, like, I'm looking at this last night. So I have the honor, J-Pat, this year. I'm I, I'm a Conn Smythe voter, which is awesome. Ah, like, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And, and I'm already taking it very seriously, right? Like, I saw Eddie Lack tweet, like, Hedman should win it. And I immediately start texting with Lack. And I'm like, why? Why should he win it? Like, tell me. Tell me everything, pro- former professional player who has an opinion on this. Like, I need to know. And I'll start making my calls. And, and you know, I'll, I'll treat this with the due gravity with which I treat everything. Uh, but, you know, so but I'm... Hang on. You're, you're, not, you're not shitting on the idea of Hedman winning this thing. No, no. So, I, so I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. But I'm looking at the underlyings after the game last night because I'm thinking Kucherov took over game two and three, right? Like, in the games that the Lightning won... Kucherov was the best player on the ice both games, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking, like, well, he's now hit 30 points. He's the leading scorer in this playoffs. Um, he's been unbelievable. Like, after the Lightning, like, going into the series, after the Islanders series, I was like, man, it's going to take a pretty special performance to get past Victor Hedman for me, for the Conn Smythe. And, and then Kucherov does what he's done this week, and I'm like, man, that's unbelievable. And so now I'm, I'm looking at the underlings, right? And I'm noticing things like, Kucherov's played 40 minutes in this series, five on five, and the shot differential in those minutes is 26 to six. Right, and and then and then I go to see who's the leading scorer for the Tampa Bay Lightning in this final through three games, and it's Victor Hedman. He's got five to Kucherov's four in three yeah. games. I'm just like, how do I pick between these two? Like these two are both just absolute. They're 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 freaks in the best possible way. And they're at the absolute apex of their powers. And it's been marvelous, marvelous to watch them play. Um, a, a lot of fun. And, and I think I'm going to go down to the absolute wire picking between those two for Conn Smythe. They're both so deserving. And that's, of course, in the event that Tampa Bay wins. If Dallas wins, uh, I mean, it's going to be hard to pick against Hadobin, though he hasn't had his best sort of five periods here in Game 2 and Game 3. All right. Well, I mean, one of the big storylines this week since we last hit the record button here on the VanCast was the League Awards. And, of you know, every year the sideshow is the votes and the outlier votes. So just tell me a little bit about getting selected to have a vote for the Con Smythe. Like, how select the company uh, you keep to, especially in a, in a bubble year like this. Like, there aren't many people that are there on site. So uh, how many people cast a vote? For the con Smythe at the end of this thing, I'd have to check, but it's not a it's not a huge pool. It looks like there's about fifteen or fifteen or twelve of us, twelve to fifteen of us. So um, not a huge pool. Most of us are on site, but there are a few beat writers covering from home. I think that's just in respect of the digital world. Like usually, you'd have to be here, right? But but I think they've changed it up a little bit this year. So uh, PHWA is behind all that. I, I didn't know that I was getting picked beforehand, but I was uh, I was you know quite happy to be picked um and i'm looking forward to bugging all my hockey contacts and pro scouts and you know it's a weird thing because hockey people some some hockey people just don't watch the final at this time of year because it hurts too much you know what i'm saying like there's a lot of hockey people who are like no like i can't be happy for the team winning like this is what i work for you know uh so you have to find like the rare hockey person who's curious enough that they're 
dialed in and tuned in the way, you know, a hockey geek like you or I is um, to, to sort of solicit those opinions. And I do that with everything. Like I did that with my awards ballot, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into with the, the Quinn Hughes getting robbed um, thing. But um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start making my rounds a, a little bit closer. Maybe maybe Friday. Maybe on Friday I'll start. We'll, we'll see. But, um, but, you know, the, the performances we're seeing from Tampa Bay's top-end talent just remarkable and obviously what stammer did that shot is unbelievable you know just a quick canucks note i looked it up just because i love to look it up it's one of my favorite things is how ridiculous steven stamkos is as a finisher like we haven't seen a finisher like this in the salary cap era and i don't care what anyone else has to say about this like stamkos is the best sniper the best finisher in hockey in terms of the efficiency with which he beats goaltenders of the salary cap era Period. Period. There's not anyone who's actually close. Like, Ovechkin is a power forward. He does it with volume. He takes, like, five shots a game. Steven Stamkos has taken 2,300 shots in the regular season since the 09-10 season. And his shooting percentage over 2,300 shots on NHL goaltenders is 17.2. Which means (laughs) goalies have, like, an 82.6 or 8 save percentage against the guy. Like, he's a human time machine. So I'm looking this up, and I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't know if you've noticed. I'm sure you have. Hockey reference go behind a paywall, right? So I'm using the yeah, NHL.com site as opposed to hockey reference because I'm cheap. And <laughs> um, and so I limit it to, like, because I can't limit it based on shots. Like, really, I'd like to see it based on a 1,000 shots, but I can't do that. So I'm, I'm like, okay, who's the highest shooting percentage uh, among guys over 50 goals, right? Just Just picking 50 goals is a way to sort of see it. And when I sorted it that way, Stamkos was actually fourth. Um, and number one, Elias Pettersson, 18% over the last decade of hockey. Damn. So wow. um, now, now, granted, he's taken a tenth of the number yeah. of shots that Stamkos has. Like, we know what Stamkos' finishing ability is. We think we know what Pettersson's is. But he's got a long way to go before I'm declaring him the NHL's premier marksman. But could I see it happening? Uh, yeah, yeah, I could. I don't think he's a guy whose shot's going to stop playing here. Um, and that just is a testament to how incredible Vancouver's top line center is. And like I said earlier, like I, I love a good storyline. So to have Stamkos come back and play five shifts and score, you know, even if he doesn't play again, like he's left his mark on this Stanley Cup final. You know, he could feel like he was a part of it when Gary Bettman presents him with the Stanley Cup if, in fact, Tampa ends up winning this thing. But I think it's crucial, too, when you look at the totality of the Tampa Lightning and figure out how they got here to consider that, really, they've done it without Steven Stamkos. Like, you know, they are the prohibitive favorites to win this thing now. And they've got to this point with those players that we mentioned earlier but, you know, Stamkos is really just a, a footnote in all of this. And that just speaks again to, like, think of the Canucks in 2011 trying to get to the Stanley Cup without either Daniel or Henrik, essentially, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, it's this nuts. team has, it is. It, and, and that, that yeah, that, <laughs> you, thank you, you, you summed it up perfectly. That's what I was trying to get yeah. at. It is incredible. And then I guess from that, as we start to look forward now and we look at things from a Canucks perspective, you know, Maybe you try to take lessons from the way this Tampa team is constructed, but I guess I look at it, the Canucks were able to take JT Miller 
And in return, Tampa gets some salary cap relief, but they don't get a body, right? Like, so you take JT Miller out of that team, you take Steven Stamkos, and here they are still leading the Stanley Cup final two wins away from getting it done. Like, it's just it's this machine that they have built there in Tampa. How do they keep it all together? And is there a chance that the Canucks could raid Tampa for a second straight offseason? Yeah, you know, they turn the Miller pick into Coleman, right? So they, they end up with a third-line body out of the out of the Miller trade. And, and right, fair a, enough. Yep. A more affordable third-line body. Uh, but, you know, Coleman's awesome. Like, Coleman... Coleman plays the game like a bumper car. It's it's really there's a certain um, assertive recklessness, and and I don't mean to use reckless as like he's playing dangerously. I just mean there's a like um, you know uh, without abandon style to his game that's really fun to watch. Like I, I've really I've really got a lot of time for Blake Coleman, even though the Lightning haven't had a lot of production from their depth players um, in the Western Bubble, like whether it was against the Islanders or now against. Dallas since I've been watching them live but I I love watching Blake Coleman play Uh, the Canucks should poach as much lightning DNA as they can like this lightning team is incredible The, the way they communicate the way that they use one another in terms of the chemistry on the ice the skilled hockey that's also tough you know all these little guys like these guys who when you look at their listings um on their nhl.com bio player bios like they're not big guys but they all reverse hit like, they all initiate contact in the corners. They look miserable to play against. I don't care how big Pilat is. Like, Pilat took out one of Jamie Alexiak's teeth with a counter hit in the in the corner in game one. And and they keep doing it. Like, every every time. You just watch for it. Watch, uh, you know, any, any VanCast listeners planning on watching game four, games five, Saturday or Friday. Like, uh, watch... When a Dallas Stars defender is bearing down on a, on a lightning forward in the corner, they always pop up. They always hit. They are the ones initiating contact almost every time. It it looks gruesome to play against, even though they're you know not the largest gentleman. And you know, it actually reminds me a little bit of Pedersen. But in terms of mining lightning DNA, right? And I I don't want to go on on this for too long, J Pat, just because I don't want to be the guy who says every offseason for the rest of my life covering this game, that, like, boy, this team should really consider an offer sheet. Like, we know they don't happen. I don't want to be offer sheet is what should happen guy. But Eric Cernak is the best offer sheet candidate of our, of my lifetime, as far as I'm concerned. Like, this guy leads all righties among Tampa Bay defenders in time on ice. You know, ostensibly he's on the third pair, but he's not. Like, he's very much a top four defenseman for the Lightning. He's young as anything. Like, I think he's 23, but I'm just going to check that to make sure I'm right. No, he is. Yeah. I I had to look it up, too, because uh, that surprised me. Like, he plays like a 28-year-old. Right, and he looks like a 28-year-old. But he (laughs) is a young defender. He's 6'3", he's 230-plus pounds, and he's a skilled guy, right? Like, he is a spatial problem solver in his own end. He pulls off defensive zone dekes against four checkers. Like he is a smart player and an excellent defensive piece and a physical defensive piece. And a guy who I think could be a signature matchup defenseman on, on a, on the right team, right? Like for the lightning, the signature matchup defenseman is always going to be Victor Hedman, but for a team like Vancouver, could Cernak be a one RD? Like, yeah, for sure. He could. I think a Cernak-Hughes pair would be immediately a top five to top pair in hockey. 
And when you look at the Lightning's cap issues, right? Like, I don't think they could match something like two or three times five. Or, or four, sorry. Two or three times four. Or or four two. You might not even have to go as high as four or four two. Like, with Mikhail Sergeyev to resign, and Mikhail Sergeyev's such a beast, J-Pat. It's ridiculous how good he is. And Anthony Sorelli to resign, also outrageously good. The play he made on the power play to set up the Victor Hedman 3-1 goal last night, like, just all hustle. Just, Anthony Sorelli is an incredible player. They have to resign both those guys, and they have no space to do it. Those guys are at least $4 million players. Like, they cannot re-sign Cernak, I don't think, for $4 million. And you could give the Lightning this offer sheet. You sign Cernak to an offer sheet like this. The cost is a 2021 second-round pick. Like, where, where are you ever getting a 23-year-old right-handed defenseman with size, speed, and skill like Cernak has for a second-round pick a year from now? Like, nowhere. There's no opportunity like this that I've ever seen. We've got a flat cap. We've got all these weird sort of conflating circumstances. This team's desperate to add talent on the back end. Like an Eric Cernak second-round pick for a second-round pick, which is the cost of a four times, you know, two if he wants to keep it short, five if you want to go long, like whatever. I think the Lightning would have a devil of a time making that deal, and I just think it's a no-brainer. Like for for a team like the Canucks, for me, that's like option 1A for me this offseason. Like that's what I'm doing. Why am I going out and signing an older, worse UFA or trading a bunch of pieces, draft capital, prospects for a worse defenseman? Like I'm not doing better than Cernak. The acquisition cost is little. Um, all I have to do is sign the offer sheet. Like, for me, this is a no-brainer. And it's not just the Canucks who should do this. There's, like, 15 teams in the league that should do this. And when it doesn't happen, you know, I think that's going to speak volumes uh, about, you know, why the offer sheet system is broken. And, uh, and you know, I'm probably going to rant about it a couple more times. But for me, that's, like, the most obvious. I've never seen an offer sheet candidate this good, this obvious in my life. And so this is the one off season where I'm willing to be offer sheet guy. Uh, and when it doesn't happen, I will retreat and, and stop bringing this up because clearly NHL teams have no interest in exploiting, you know, this particular device in the CBA for the sake of improving and, and, and you know, making efficient decisions. Yeah, but we saw one last year with Ajo and Montreal, so yeah, it's not true. to say that it, it can't happen. But, you know, it's funny listening to you, and, and it didn't take a lot of convincing, because I know Harm has been on the Eric Chernak train for a while, right? Like when he's written about trade candidates for the Canucks, Chernak's always at the top of his list, so mm-hmm. anybody that's followed Harm's we, we, work... We, we collaborate on those, though, right? Like Fair enough. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. <laughs> but, but my point is, like, there is so much hunger and appetite in this market for Brogan Rafferty to get plugged in and get an opportunity. And I say this with all the respect in the world to Brogan Rafferty, and I hope he plays, and I hope he makes the Vancouver Canucks. D- didn't you have him third t- on your prospect list, J-Pat? I haven't done prospect lists. You know me the, and list. The TSN hockey. You're the, you're, you're the TSN hockey guy. You I have Brogan Rafferty TSN third. Hockey. I'm not the TSN <laughs> hockey list guy, but I saw a lot of people. I mean, the 25-year-old, you know, the 25 jumps off the page at you. It does. And But but uh, there's this hunger in this market to have Brogan Rafferty, who has played two NHL games, and they were against Nashville and St. Louis at the end of that previous season, and, yep. and St. Louis obviously went on to win the Stanley Cup. Like, you know, they weren't throwaway games, and they certainly weren't for Brogan Rafferty getting his feet wet in the NHL. 
But you're talking about a ready-made 23-year-old with this pedigree who could come off a Stanley Cup run getting yeah. plugged in to help the Vancouver Canuck defense as opposed to a 25-year-old who had a fine first pro season in the American Hockey League. But I, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of you know paint a picture of the difference in these two guys. Like We just don't know what Brogan Rafferty is ever going to be. And you already know what a guy like Chernak is and He's only going to get better at that age, continuing to develop. So <laughs> if, uh, I'm with you. Like, I, I'm I'm all over something like that. And I do hope, like, you know, would he be a great fit in Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if it's not Vancouver, though, like, I do hope that there is a team in the National Hockey League that is ready uh, to get down to business and extend an offer sheet because uh, it's there, it's available, it's a mechanism that, you know, these teams do have. And yep. this one, again, you know, for a team that's going to be up against it like Tampa, uh, it does, you're right, like it feels like the time is now uh, to actually see some movement on the offer sheet front. For sure, and and obviously the concern is always going to be retaliatory offer sheets, but it's like, you know, y- you can't really offer sheet guys who are arbitration eligible, which are Vertanen and Stetcher, and Adam Gaudet's not eligible to sign one anyway. Quinn Hughes won't be next year, so the only real risk you're, you're running is, is Elias Pettersson. And, you know, <laughs> the Lightning aren't going to have the space to make that offer anyway. Like, right. this is, yeah. for I don't know, I, I rarely see moves that I'm just like, no, this is a no-brainer. Like, this is a no-brainer. And a Cernak offer sheet is a no-brainer, and you're right. Whether it's for the Canucks or somebody else, I, I've just never seen one that's this obvious in my life. And, uh, and for me... You know, like you say, we don't know what Brogan Rafferty is. Uh, we know what Cernak is. Like, I'm pretty sure Brogan Rafferty is not Cernak. Like, I, I am. I'm, right. I'm, I'm fairly confident. I, I feel very comfortable saying that. Um, and look, the Canucks, you know, Harmon wrote a great piece sort of breaking down what the Canucks need to compare to your average cup winner over the last 10 years. And among the things that he suggested they need are three top four defensemen. Two, so long as Edler is still at the level that he was this year, right? And so, you know, maybe one, maybe you get one guy like that out of Yolevi, Rathbone, Rafferty, Wu, maybe, maybe, if you're lucky. So you still need one more. Like, you still need one more. And for me, Cernak, man, he is so good. <laughs> He's so good. And, uh, and it's just a no-brainer. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to rant about that, even though it's, a little bit pie in the sky, and I don't actually expect the Canucks to take that route. Um, it just looks so obvious to me from you know this vantage point that I have as a group five in the bubble. He's been amazing, and I can't escape the fact that he's everything this team needs. Uh, buyout window about to open, the draft yeah. beyond that, free agency. It's that time of the year. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? Every sports story that matters, you can join right now for just $1.25 a month to get all access to The Athletic's exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. So don't miss it. Subscribe now and save. Sign up and see for yourself the creativity, the reporting, the storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash thevancast, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1.25 a month. Sports are back. You don't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite team. So go to theathletic.com slash thevancast. Receive an all-access subscription for just $1.25 a month. We hope to see you there. Hey, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, Kale McCarr wins the Rookie of the Year. I know you have written extensively throughout the extensively. season. Extensively. Lobbied yes. hard. Yeah. <laughs> for Quinn Hughes. 
but I think we all, uh, you and I have talked about this. Like, I think we agreed that Makara was going to win the award, right? Based yeah. on other polls from other outlets and just the talk that was out there. So yeah. I don't think either I don't think either one of us was surprised that Kale McCarr is the Rookie of the Year. What about the end result, though? The vote? Did you expect that the vote would be closer? No, I thought it was close. They were only separated by two hundred final points. I th- I think it would have been a lot. I thought it was going to be. Uh, I thought it was closer. It was closer than I thought it would be. To be honest with you. So your power of persuasion over the season didn't. Uh... <laughs> didn't fall on deaf ears no I, look i think the there's two sort of main things that i think sealed this for Makar. and the first was the first impression that he made right he went on that binge of scoring early it was never going to be sustainable and when i first sort of pointed out that like hey look this race is closer than than the public thinks um you know that's what i was pointing out like i was pointing out that hughes's underlying numbers were better um and they continued to be. And I was pointing out that Hughes's production is sustainable here. He's going to continue on being, you know, a 0.7 points per game player, whereas Kale McCarr is not going to continue to be a point per game player. And, and from the point that I wrote that article to the end of the season, uh, Hughes outscored McCarr. But, and then the other factor that I think really sealed this for McCarr is McCarr had four points in the very last game that the Avalanche played before the pause against the New York Rangers. And... Uh, first of all, it was against a big market team, which always helps. And second of all, the sort of way that that ended made them really close in terms of overall production and in terms of rate production gave Makar a significant edge. And when you don't finish a season, like if you play 82 games, the fact that Makar plays 15 or 20 fewer matters, right? But in a world where no one gets to 82, rate stats are king. Like that's always going to be the case, right? Quinn Hughes's case for the Calder would have picked up steam. Now, Hughes has said that he was running out of steam right before the pause. So maybe that changes the logic of it a little bit. But I think the key for Hughes to really have a case was if the Canucks had made the playoffs and if Quinn Hughes had continued to produce just as he was, he would have gotten into the top five all time in rookie scoring by a defenseman, right? Like he would have set the Canucks all time record for sure. And then he had a real shot at getting into, you know, that 63, 64, 65 point range. And once you get into that range, you're passing guys like Chris Chelios and Ray Bork. And and I think, like, if in the last game of the season, for example, the Canucks secure a playoff spot, a team that no one expected to make the playoffs, and, and Quinn Hughes gets a power play assist that puts him tied with Ray Bork for third all time in rookie scoring, like... I think that would have been really hard for voters to ignore. Like, I think that I think there was a fundamental opportunity for Hughes to upset the apple cart and change the consensus view over the last 13 games in the season. Um, he didn't get that opportunity. Like, it is what it is. And that's sort of what really sealed this as Makar's award, in my opinion. But when I, when I think about the experience I've had, J-Pat, in this bubble, and the fact that I saw Makar play, like, 13, 15 times, and I saw Hughes play just as many, maybe a little more. How many games did the Canucks play? 17 in the bubble. Um, You know, I saw both these guys play live, like 30 times-ish. And everything that I said 
before about Hughes's gravity and the way he impacts the game being greater than Makar and the hockey IQ, the preternatural hockey IQ that Hughes brings being completely unique. Um, it's all true. Like everything I saw in this bubble emphasized for me that while Makar has the edge in terms of in zone defensive play, while he's an incredible offensive defenseman and, and while he's the more physical of the two defenders, He's just not Quinn Hughes. And what Quinn Hughes does in terms of how he impacts the game with his feet, with his brain, uh, it's just different. Like, it's just distinct uh, from what Makar is able to manage. And, you know, for that reason, I suspect that this, you know, argument uh, and and Makar being over, you know, winning over Hughes with 66% of first place votes, um, you know, I think that'll age poorly. Like, I think Hughes is the superior defender at this point. And, and I think Heskinen might be better than both. So uh, it's just a fascinating sort of argument. It's been a fun debate, and we're lucky that we're going to see the, those three guys in the Western Conference um, play and play deep into the playoffs for many years to come because they are all absolutely incredible. Right, and I always felt that by making his NHL debut in the playoffs and getting you know, that pub early on and joining a a Denver team that, you know, got on a little bit of a run a year ago. Like, to me, if it was a 100-yard dash or 100-meter dash to the rookie of the year between Hughes and McCarr, you know, McCarr had a three-step head start just because he was on people's radar. I know Hughes had played those five games when he turned pro at the end of the previous season and looked good and gave us all a taste, but those weren't playoff games in terms of a, a national you know, prominence and significance and exposure and all those types of things. So I always thought that, you know, it was going to be an uphill battle for Quinn Hughes, even if all things were equal. I still think that Kale McCarr kind of had an advantage by, you know, making his NHL debut on that stage. Like, this was his, you know, you talk about watching him. You have to keep in mind, like, this was his second look, second crack at the NHL playoffs, right? Like, that has to matter. That had to mean something because we all talked about like all these Canuck players that didn't have playoff experience. How would they, you know, would they figure it out? Would they sort it out? And the answer was, yeah, Pedersen and Hughes certainly did. But, you know, Kale McCarr had already been down this road once by getting a, a look firsthand at Stanley Cup playoff action. Yeah, and for sure. And also, you know, McCarr is older, right? McCarr is older. Yep. And he is larger, right? Like he is, he has a more NHL-ready profile in a lot of ways. Um but yeah, and look, they're both unbelievable. I just it's it's just the way that Hughes impacts the game and some of the chances and decisions that Makar makes on the attack are conventional to me in terms of what we expect from an offensive defenseman, right? Like an offensive defenseman who occasionally goes too soon or, you know, makes a bad pinch or carries the puck and does an amazing move in the offensive end but it leaves him out of position when he goes to change and creates a scoring opportunity the, the other way right like McCarr does those things that we expect from young skilled high-end defensemen Hughes doesn't like how weird is that about Hughes like we I can think of a few plays where a Hughes turnover like led to a goal against but not many not many considering how many minutes he played as a 20 year old defenseman in the NHL um and that's sort of what sets him apart in my opinion right like that's what makes Hughes so special is his two-way awareness is just on a different level, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, th- that opinion was just hardened by what I saw in the Western bubble. All right, so let's turn our attention from Quinn Hughes, who finishes runner-up to Kale McCarr, to Jacob Markstrom, and a ton of buzz, obviously, for obvious reasons, two weeks out from free agency now. Uh, but, 
you know, good for Jacob Markstrom. Finishes fourth in the Vesna voting. It's weird that that hasn't been mar- remarked upon that much in the Vancouver market. Like, it was really overshadowed by the Hughes thing, right? I but, Totally. I completely agree with that. But it's amazing because there's two things, two big takeaways from Markstrom, who A was the only goaltender other than Connor Hellebuck to get better than one fifth place vote for the heart, finished top 15 in heart balloting, and B, had five NHL general managers out of 30. I don't know why. One one NHL general manager seems to have not voted for the Vesna or, or have spoiled their ballot. But, um, you know, he got five votes for the Vesna, including a second place vote from one NHL general manager. And I think this speaks to... Like, obviously, when we talk about Markstrom, we talk about the contract negotiation. And it's a fascinating one for a lot of reasons. And a difficult one for a lot of reasons, right? Expansion, Demco's emergence, uh, the marketplace itself. But one thing about this is that it's basically been set. Like, this, the logic of this negotiation it has fundamentally been set and unchanged for months. Like, I was writing during the pause about how the Canucks were going to be reluctant and hold firm on no-move protection. Um, I was writing during the pause about a big reason for that being that the moment you sign Markstrom to a deal with an NMC, you have to trade Demko for cents on the dollar, right? Like, that's not something this team can afford to do, not something they want to do. And um, so we're in this position, which is consistent with where we've been for a long time, where, you know, the Canucks want Markstrom back, Markstrom wants to be back, but it's clear that the market will bear more in terms of term and treasure for Markstrom elsewhere than it will in Vancouver. And, you know, that's why I've always said that this deal is going to go down to the wire, right? This has been my talking point for like eight months. This is a complicated one and it's going to go down to the wire. And we're now sort of in the end game and every update is treated breathlessly in the market when the fundamentals haven't shifted at all. Like this has always been what this was going to look like. And now The one thing that's maybe changed, the only thing that's maybe upset this logic at all, is reflected by the fact that five general managers voted for Markstrom for the Vesna. And and here's, here's what's changed. Fundamentally, the market and the industry as a whole has come around, finally, to what Markstrom has become and evolved into, a high-end workhorse starter over the last 24 months. And now... Like I talked to a, I talked to some people in the industry this week who suggested to me that Markstrom was the second highest rated UFA for them behind only Pietrangelo. That they like, they think Markstrom will have a bigger impact in the event that he changes teams than Taylor Hall will Damn. as a wow. UFA. And so the the industry opinion on Markstrom has finally sort of congealed around this idea of viewing him as what he's been viewed as in Vancouver for a while a real difference maker and so you know markstrom's gonna if he goes to market have a ton of interest uh looks like teams from the flames to the maple leafs to the detroit red wings to the chicago blackhawks may may kick the tires and may kick the tires in a major way and good for him like he's earned that um i still think this gets done i still think the incentives align enough to keep him in vancouver but um, it's going to be dicey. It's going to be complicated. And it's going to be complicated for all the reasons that, you know, we've been talking about for months and months here. Um, I, I, I guess I would just caution everybody to sort of be patient here, like to, to be calm anyway. Like you're going to have moments where it looks bad. Like you're going to have moments where things leak and, you know, as the two sides posture and as the two sides haggle, 
um, where it looks bleak and, and where it looks like Markstrom might leave, uh, just as it does with every UFA for whom the Canucks are grinding, you know, over the past couple of years, right? Like you think about the Edler contract as, as sort of the premium example of that. Um, it's going to get dicey here, but the fundamental logic of this negotiation is that both sides want to get a deal done. It's just really difficult to come to a fair agreement because of all the other underlying factors uh, that surround this negotiation, um, which include everything from expansion to Demco to term to money. Um, it's a complicated one, and that's why it's going to go long, go right, into the but, 11th hour. But I think, you know, complicating all of that is the time constraint, too, that if, you know, in a vacuum, if it was just two sides going back and forth, you know, that's negotiation, but there is the draft in the middle of all of this. There is the fact that the Canucks have to worry about their other free agents and the Markstrom deal you know, obviously could have a massive trickle-down effect on the other free agents and Absolutely. restricted free Like, there's, there's so much on Jim Benning's plate. And we said that, I mean, we've said that for a long time, but the minute the Canucks got eliminated, we thought, okay, now, like, this month is going to be crazy. Well, we're two months in, or two weeks into this month of craziness and nothing on the surface yet, right? Like, there, Yeah, it's true. Th- so all of this just stacks up against these deadlines now, which further complicates it. I'm not saying that, you know, no. the front office can't figure it out, but, like, things are coming fast and furious. Like, fastballs are coming right down the pipe, and they, <laughs> yeah. they've got to be able to, to get the bat on the ball here and, and start knocking a few of these things out of the park. Uh, a couple other things that, and again, we haven't done this in, in a week. Like, it feels like forever, but we haven't had a chance to digest this one uh, Manny Malhotra, and good for him. You know, he gets a job with the Leafs. It's going to be a bench job. That was something the Canucks didn't have available to Manny in the here and now. And so Manny Malhotra takes an opportunity to further his coaching career. But you do hate to see people that are highly regarded in the yep. industry, as Manny was, uh, as a coach, uh, a mentor. You hear all the players talk about the work that he did with video and staying after practice and face-offs and you know, penalty kill and all those types of things. And we know uh, what Manny Malhotra was like as a player. And you hear his teammates, BX has been on TV a bunch talking about, you know, just how he commanded the locker room, even as a third line center. You know, I, I just, I hope this didn't boil down to a money thing that, you know, I mean, we've talked about the fact that uh, all these teams, uh, nobody's selling tickets right now. There are, yep. you know, there's a cash crunch. Like, I, I don't know. And, you know, I, again, I'm glad Manny's getting an opportunity if he wants to be on a bench. But it just feels like, damn, wasn't there a way that the Canucks could have found a way to retain a guy that seems like the kind of person that you want in your organization here moving forward? Yeah, and, and I think... So there's a lot going on here overall, but I do think the key was the opportunity. Like Newell Brown and Nolan Baumgartner had Manny blocked effectively in Vancouver. Like he wasn't going to, you know, Nolan runs the PK and the D and is Travis's guy. Like he's been on Travis's bench throughout Travis's coaching career. Like since the moment he appeared in the AHL, Nolan's been his guy. And on the other side, you've got Newell Brown, who's, you know, just quarterbacked uh, or or called the shot called the signals I guess for a power play that led the NHL in goal differential like I don't care what their game seven performance against Vegas looked like versus the entire body of work you know there's no way to look at what Newell Brown did this season and give him any less than an a plus grade in my view right um it was a tremendous it was a tremendously constructed power play the right buttons were pressed all season uh different iterations they all worked 
Um, the Canucks power play was a major reason why they overachieved to the extent that they did all year. So, you know, there was just no opportunity for Malhotra to move up and get the kinds of opportunities that a smart, ambitious guy like him wanted. And in Toronto, you know, he found that opportunity. And, and I think it was really bittersweet. Like the Canucks were not going to block a guy that they really like. Like <laughs> Malhotra was a big part culturally of that coaching staff too, right? Like they were all really close um, so I think they were. it was bittersweet to give him the opportunity to interview, to grant him permission to do that, partly because I thought they thought he had a good shot. And in Toronto, it's going to be a really fascinating challenge for him because he's replacing Paul McFarland. Now, Paul McFarland came to Toronto from the Florida Panthers. I worked really closely with Paul McFarland. And McFarland's gone to be the head coach of the Kingston Frontenacs. I think that's the right call. McFarland's a, a head coach, in my view. But he's also... Like, I don't think it worked out really in Toronto. Like, I think he was Babs's guy. Um, so I think it, it I, I, don't, I don't know that it really worked out um, culturally all that well for him. But X's and O's wise, Paul McFarlane's the smartest guy I've met in the sport. Like, I think Paul McFarlane's a genius. And he ran the Maple Leafs power play. And I would assume in replacing McFarland that Malhotra, right, is going to run a power play. And that's not... Wasn't his specialty as a player, certainly. Uh, sometimes the guys who have spent the most time thinking about how to shut down power plays make really good coaches. But, um, you know, that's going to be a new challenge for sure for, for Manny. And he's got a lot of talent at his disposal. I think he'll have a major impact just in terms of, you know, approach and video and face-offs for guys like Austin Matthews, right? Like, I, I think Malhotra's <laughs> the potential for Malhotra to impact that Leafs team is massive but you know I do I do think the fit's going to be interesting to see how it works out and and I do think it's going to be a big challenge for for a really bright really ambitious really hard-working hockey guy um and I wish him the best of luck I, I I think it'll work out but I do think it's going to be a big challenge and and a big challenge maybe outside the scope of what you'd expect to be his specializations at least in the event that the Leafs don't shuffle portfolios for their assistance uh, and Malhotra's just taking over from McFarland, pure and simple. Yeah, and, and look, I get the fan reaction that, you know, we hear this is a team now that players are going to look long and hard at, you know, wanting to be a part of as free agents or if uh, trades are made. And yet you have a guy like Judd Brackett who leaves and now you got Manny Malhotra. You know, I, I just think fans see the optics of, you know, good respected people in the industry leaving at a right. time when it looks like the Canucks are about to, to sort of launch, you know, on in, into their competitive window here. So, you know, it's funny. I, I mentioned Super Judd Brackett. I, I mentioned Judd Brackett, and we should put this out there. Uh, our colleague, Mike Russo, uh, who covers the Minnesota Wild, he's got Bill Guerin on his Straight from the Source podcast this week. But next week, and Canuck fans, I'm sure, are going to want to check this out, Judd Brackett is going to join Mike Russo on F. S S F T S, which is straight from the source. Uh, we'll let you know again when that is posted, but uh, be fascinating because Judd really didn't speak publicly, uh, you know, on his way out of Vancouver. But he's going to get a chance to talk to Mike Russo on his podcast here coming in the next week to ten days. So certainly looking forward to that. Uh, we'll, we'll make that homework. Uh, you know, that's that's almost yeah. like homework for Canuck <laughs> fans uh, to check out uh, Judd Brackett when he joins Russo on Straight From The Source. Uh, we always ask you at the end of our podcast to check out the comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app and rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple, 
And if you aren't a subscriber to The Athletic, go to theathletic.com slash thevancast. You can receive an all-access subscription for just $1.25 a month. All right. uh, Next time we do this, the hockey season could very well be over. Please, please, Lord. (laughs) No, uh, I'll look forward to it. And, and, you know, obviously just want to let our listeners know we'll be ramping back up for October. Like we'll be back to going multiple times per week and and doing this the way you expect. And obviously emergency pods coming in the event that moves occur here. I expect them to in pretty short order, whether it's a signing or a trade or, or something. I expect the Canucks to get some business done, transacted prior to the week that I'm calling Hockey News Armageddon, October 5th to October 9th, a week that will include the draft and the opening of free agency. In addition to the close of the buyout window, there's going to be a lot of grist for the mill. All right, and that mill will be cranking again. Uh, we'll get it back up and running <laughs> multiple times a week for you. Uh, for Grant Jordan Edmonton, this is Jay Pat. As always, thanks so much for your support uh, and your listenership here uh, to the Vancast at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.